You can support the Reality Check podcast on Patreon, GoFundMe, or by purchasing one of my books. Links down in the show notes below. Welcome to the Reality Check podcast. I'm Zachary Phillips. So in today's episode, I want to talk about the issues that I have with the school system. So to highlight this, I'm going to read a little sort of short story that sort of really emphasizes what I'm going to drive home. It's by an anonymous author, but it really sort of emphasizes what I'm trying to get through. Once a little boy went to school. He was quite a little boy, and it was quite a big school. But the little boy found that he could go into his room by walking right in front of the door outside. He was happy, and the school did not seem quite so big anymore. One morning, the little boy had been in school for a while. The teacher said, today we're going to draw a picture. Good, thought the boy. He could draw all kinds of things, lions and tigers, chickens and cows, trains and boats. He took out a box of crayons and he began to draw. But the teacher said, wait, it's not time to begin. And she waited until everybody looked ready. Now, said the teacher, we're going to make flowers. Good, thought the boy. He liked to make flowers and he began to make beautiful ones with pink and orange and blue crayons. But the teacher said, wait, I'll show you how. And the teacher drew a flower. It was red with a green stem. There, said the teacher, now you may begin. The little boy looked at the teacher's flower, then he looked at his own flower. He liked his flower better than the teacher's, but he did not say this. He just turned his paper over. He made a flower like the teacher's. It was red with a green stem. On another day, when the little boy had opened the door by himself, the teacher said, Today we're going to make something with clay. Good, thought the little boy. He liked clay. He could make all kinds of things with clay, snakes and snowmen, elephants and mice, cars and trucks. He began to pull and pinch his ball of clay. But the teacher said, wait, it's not time to begin. And she waited until everybody looked ready. Now, said the teacher, we're going to make a dish. Good, thought the boy. He liked to make dishes. And he began to make some that were all kinds of shapes and sizes. But the teacher said, wait, I'll show you how to make one deep dish. There, said the teacher, now you may begin. The little boy looked at the teacher's dish, then he looked at his own. He liked his dish better than the teacher's, but he did not say this. He just rolled his clay into a big bowl again and made a dish like the teacher's. It was a deep dish. And quite soon, the little boy learned to wait and to watch and to make things just like the teacher. And quite soon, he didn't make anything of his own anymore. Then it happened. The little boy and his family moved to another house in another city, and the little boy had to go to another school. This school was even bigger than the other one, and there was no door from the outside into his room. He had to go up some big steps and walk down some long hall to get to his room. On the very first day he was there, the teacher said, Today we're going to make a picture. Good, thought the little boy, and then he waited for the teacher to tell him what to do. But the teacher didn't say anything, she just walked around the room. When she came to the little boy, she said, Don't you want to make a picture? Yes, said the boy. What are we going to make? I don't know until you make it, said the teacher. How shall I make it? asked the boy. Why, any way you like, said the teacher. And any colour? asked the little boy. Any colour, said the teacher. If everyone made the same picture and used the same colours, how would I know what, who made what and which was which? I don't know, said the little boy. And then he began to make a red flower with a green stem. Now, obviously, this is just a story, but it really highlights 
highlights the issues that I have with the school system in general. Obviously, there's a need for, you know, a conformity and a uniformity with education. You know, you have to get to a level, you know, a standard that gets people ready for society. But unfortunately, the way the school system is currently set up now, just for some context, I am a Australian secondary school trained teacher and I did work full time for quite a few years and now I work as a replacement teacher. So I do have some level of, you know, in-house knowledge of this. The school system was designed to get people ready to work for the society that it was created for. Now, schools were made, you know, the, the modern school system, the way we think of it was, you know, formulated or started hundreds of years ago in which people needed to be of a level of proficiency that would allow them to work in factories and other sort of things like that. This meant kids were taught to sit in rows, follow instructions, and learn things that would help them in their life. Fortunately, society and technology has moved on since then. We no longer work anywhere near as much in factories, you know, and the sort of jobs that people are getting are constantly changing. If you think about the impact of technology and society and all that sort of stuff, social media, everything's changing. However, for most, for, in most schools that I've experienced and just seemingly around the world, most of the school system has remained this archaic in the past sort of system. This little poem or this little story that I read out at the start really sort of emphasizes this. Kids are shown, hey, this is the right way to do things. This is how you do it. This is how you should do it. This is the right way. Well, is it the right way? Why is it the right way? How do we know it's the right way? Because the teacher said. The teacher or a teacher is not the be all and end all. A teacher is not someone that knows everything. In the past, there was this look of teachers and going, well, we should respect them because they're of their position. Modern society doesn't seem to operate like that. People seem to operate on a meritocracy, as in if you can show your knowledge or if you can prove your knowledge or if you, you know, have done something, that causes people to give respect. And modern kids are really starting to act that way. People don't respect the the inherent education, i.e. you've got a uni degree. And, you know, from the teacher's perspective, I, I can't help but agree with that. I've, as a student, I've had some amazing, competent, inspiring teachers, and I've had some real duds. And when I've been working in schools, I can definitely relate the same thing. Some teachers are amazing and some teachers are not so much. With all that in mind, where does that lead us? It leaves us with a class full of kids learning things that they aren't that inspired or even see a point of learning by people who aren't always competent or don't even really know it. I mean, teachers are regularly put on to teach things that they've not even studied beyond their own level of high school experience, but they read the books and they sort of, you know, you, as long as you're one page ahead of the kid, you can teach it, right? Which is fucking ridiculous. Um... So you're left with a class full of kids that don't really care about what they're learning. They're not shown why they're learning it, and they're not given the freedom to express or explore their own minds and their own ideas of what they would want to express and explore. 
obviously there's a practical reality of how do you design classrooms that could foster a more creative learning experience or a more creative style, but it is possible. It is possible to set up broader guidelines and then sort of let the students choose where they want to. The reason these ideas, when they get implemented, don't work is because a lot of teachers are inherently uninspiring. They teach to the test. They Their justification for getting students to do something is, well, do it because I told you so. Do it because you'll get punished. Do it because it's on the test. What this does is it leaves students going, well, what the fuck's the point? Yeah, like, I'm not going to be able to do this properly. I'm going to get punished anyway, so I may as well not bother doing it. What? There's no inherent motivation here. I, I've got, you know, you've got a plethora of examples in your own life, I'm sure, but how much do you wish there was a class that taught you how to do taxes or, you know, literally how to shop and budget or, you know, how to choose a phone bill that like, you know, a mobile phone plan that gives you the best in terms of, you know, budgeting and all that sort of stuff. I get it. People need to learn a variety of things and be exposed to a variety of things, but how many people do you know in your life that who learnt in year eight or year nine history about the French King Charlemagne? How much has that impacted your life? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a massive history buff, but I know that in year nine, learning about the gold rush in Australia was very uninspiring and it actually turned me off history only until my later in li- later on in life when I saw an actual relevance, when I saw that it actually no- knowledge of history could actually impact my life. Did I actually start caring? So we've got two problems here. The problem one is, is a lot of the times the content that students are forced to focus on is inherently not relevant to their lives or you know their future lives. And two, they're not told the why. Why do I need to study this? So let's take history, for example. When I've had to teach history, I'll come into the class and do a couple of things. The first one is, is I'll outline to them or I'll put their hands up, get them to put their hands up saying, you know, who here thinks history is boring and don't like it, etc., etc. The majority of the kids put their hand up. Then I ask them, well, why do we think that the government, the school, is paying people like me, you know, this amount of money and across all of the schools? And you can do the quick maths and work out that if a teacher's paid, say, 65000 70000 a year, and there's, you know, X amount of history teachers in a regular school, and there's this many schools, you can very quickly work out just how much a history education is costing the Australian government and therefore their parents in terms of taxes, right? And, you know, I don't know the exact amount, but it's in the millions and millions of dollars. So obviously the government and the school thinks this is worth it. Why? And they can't answer it. So then I'll take them down a few different paths. One path is looking at a modern occurrence in history, for example, the rise of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all that sort of stuff. And you can take people back and you say, well, what was that caused by? And well, prior to ISIS being raised, we invaded after September 11. What caused September 11? Well, you know, you look at the Soviets invading um, Afghanistan and the Americans funding that. And you go back before that, well, why were they invading? And then you look at the Cold War. How'd the Cold War start? Well, you look at World War II. How'd World War II start? Well, you look at the causes of World War I. And in World War I, how the Middle East was subdivided based on the English and French desires not based on ethnicities. Back and back and back and back. So you can get a very long chain of events. And if you show students, well, we're here, and this is why, you know, there's terrorism in the news, is because of something that happened literally 100 plus years ago. And you can create that link. And then I like to bring it even more personal in the sense of, 
you ask the students, hey, can anyone tell me the name of their great-great-grandparents? Most of the time, you no one can. And if you do, they can't tell you anything other than a name and maybe a place of birth, right? So what this means is that for everybody, they've lost, everybody's relatives have been lost to history, i.e. they haven't been remembered. So then the next logical step is, is you may not be remembered. No one in here may be remembered, right? Because if we don't remember them, why would our future generations remember us? How many generations will it take before we're forgotten? And if that's the case, if the vast, vast, vast majority of humans are forgotten, why are there a few that we do remember, a few events that we do remember? What, what is their relevance? Yeah? And then the third thing I go is the concept that history is like our collective memory. When you were growing up, there would have been a couple of times where you accidentally touched a hot stove and burnt yourself, right? You touched it and you burnt. Beyond that, or like because of that, you now know not to touch a hot stove. You're cautious, you check, etc., etc. If we take the concept that history is our collective memory, that means we can look at history, look at what's happening, and look at what has happened, and look at what we're doing, and then apply that to our life so we learn from the past. Why does it matter when people are protesting and, you know, like white, the white supremacy movement is rising in America? Why, why do people care? Well, look to the past, look what's happened, and you can see that when a bunch of people with totalitarian and bigoted ideas rise to power and stir up a fervor, it can lead to Nazism, right? The, you know, and that goes down a very dark path. That's why we are very, very, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of passion is raised based on current events when you compare it to what's happened in the past. Because if we don't learn from our past, we will we will repeat it. Just like if you don't learn from your own personal pasts, you will repeat it. You'll probably find that you date a couple of terrible people that, you know, use and abuse you. You'll probably find that you trip yourself over or fall into, you know, f fall over and not catch yourself or you'll burn yourself or you'll, you know... <laughs> There's so many instances that you'll learn from your past. My son, he went and opened a door and he accidentally put his hand in the, you know, in the door thing and he got it, he got it closed. It's the second time he's done it. Now he knows that if he puts his hands there, there's a risk for whatever reason of the door opening and closing and hurting his hand. He may not understand the exact mechanisms why, but he knows that if he puts his hand there, this thing happens. In the same sense, you know, I can't help but just draw an analogy between America's involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq and America's involvement in Vietnam. There's a lot of parallels. But if you look at the the way that the war has been handled and the way that the military has been acting, they've certainly learned a lot. The casualties on the Allied side, as in the US and coalition forces, is a lot lower. So they have learned. You get the idea. The problem is, is with delivering that sort of lesson to kids, is that it takes a lot of time and requires a lot of passion and in-depth knowledge. Now, I'm not history trained as a teacher, but I have an interest in it myself. However, I've seen a bunch of teachers that are geography trained be forced to teach history because it's all humanities or English trained teach history, right? Science teaching history, whatever. It's particularly junior history. And it's like, oh, it's junior history. It doesn't matter. But it really does because the alternative way that I've, you know, witnessed teachers start history class is by saying, in 1315, this this king did this thing and blah, 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 read this page, answer these questions. 
no context, no relevance for the students, no understanding of why. That's just how they were taught history. That's how they think they should teach history. And because they haven't got the training, they haven't got the passion, they don't understand the content well enough, that's how it's delivered. On the receiving end, students look at this and go, well, why am I doing this? What's the point? It's just another boring-ass history lesson, like every other lesson that I am here. This leads to disillusionment and disengagement. Then you have the issue of, like this story presented, of kids that have a passion and they have a drive, but those passions and those drives aren't in line with the school curriculum, right? So if I have a... I've had many students, one student came to me and he's like, he knew that I was doing some fiction writing and he's like, look, sir, look at this. And he pulled out this, this sort of slab of fiction that he was working through. Now, what he was doing was he was in a team talk classroom. So I was sort of rotating, looking around when I discovered what he was doing and another teacher was teaching. And I noticed that he was very, very quickly doing the bare minimum on his work and then straight away getting back to focusing on his fiction novel. This kid is crazy passionate about that. He wants to go down a particular path. However, he's forced to do things that will have zero relevance for him. I've had other kids that are crazily into artistry and drawing, and they are just bored out of their brain in, you know, a technical maths class or a science class. This isn't to say they don't need some base level of knowledge, but how much of that knowledge do they need? Could it be possible to help focus them down that path. And yes, they can choose later on. Yes, by year nine, year 10, year 11, they can start choosing particular subjects. But like, let's say that kid with that likes art chooses art in year nine and year 10. How disengaged from school are they up until that point? And furthermore, even if they chose every single art subject that they could, is the art, is the art being taught in a way that would be appealing? Because there's a few different ways you can teach art. It could be that sort of free free expression, free draw, free creation. Or it could be, hey, let's learn this artistic theory. Let's look at these artists. There's a strong difference there in the sense that learning and free expression of art is great. But learning the, the sort of historical or technical side of art may not be. Yes, you might want to go down that path. And yes, there should be a bit of that. But it's very hard. Now, I understand that I'm just picking the faults and not providing much of a solution. I don't claim to be smart enough to come up with an overarching solution that would fix every problem. I get, I get it. It's tough. It's hard. I just see a need for a the promotion of why. Why are we doing anything? Yeah? So in this in this example with the kid with the flower, why does he need to do it the teacher's way? Does the, is the teacher's way better? Does, is the teacher's way a better way to draw a flower? Or is it that that's just the way the teacher thinks that it should be taught? Because I tell you what, a teacher is just a person, right? It's just a person that's gone through some qualifications and is just doing a job. Just like a doctor or a lawyer, any other person, they are just people, yeah? They're just, everyone's just a person that is trained and is doing something. So it doesn't make them right. The teacher's way to draw a flower isn't necessarily the right way. And if they push kids down a particular path, they're shaping them to act in a way that the teacher suggests. Not necessarily the most conducive to to prosperity, to the kid's happiness, to, to the kid's functionality. I've written three books, right? One of them being fairly quite big. 
right? And some fiction. Now, all through high school, I was not good at English. I hated it. I don't hate English now. I love it. I'm a writer. I write every day. (laughs) But listening to and following what I thought English was or, you know, writing was or creative expression was with word was, that was polar opposites to where I was mentally and internally and what I thought it was about. There's, I think there's a fear that if you give kids freedom, they will slack off, right? If you, if you, if you allow kids to just do whatever they want, you know, if you give kids freedom to go down a particular path and explore their own interests that they won't learn. And I, I, I certainly agree. You do have to shape a situation. You have to push people, you know, sort of like guide them in general, but you don't need to force them to do everything specifically exactly the way it is. I I had to take a, a year nine or a year eight English class and they were to focus on poetry. And rather than letting the kids explore a variety of different poetry or modern poetry or rap or something like that, they said, hey kids, look at this poem. And it was a poem, this is in Australia, it was a poem written by a Aboriginal woman, I think, in the 1850s. And the idea was that it was supposed to teach them about some of the plights of the Aboriginal people back then through poetry in relation to Australia and that sort of stuff. The problem was is that the language that was used was unattainable for kids of that level. The context was completely irrelevant to the kid's life. And the 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 the, the words and the issues in the poem were just not really explainable without a bunch of research. Now the side issue is, is yes, learn about your history, learn about the past, learn about how people were oppressed, all that sort of stuff. But if your goal is to give people an interest in poetry, there's a much better way to stow that interest in poetry. Does that make sense? Like, you can't kill those two birds. You can't teach the history and give people the interest in poetry. You have to choose one or the other. Because going half and half will mean that your education on the Indigenous rights and issues and all that sort of stuff won't be great because they're not going to care because the poetry is hard to integrate with at a year eight and year nine level. I struggled with it as an adult. And they're also just not going to like the poetry because it's about a topic that they don't care about. Right? This is a long-winded rant and there's no real purpose to this other than to say that something that really helped me as a young adult or a a late teen, a young adult, and now, is to realise that my education is my own responsibility, right? If you've got crap teachers, if you think your school sucks, if, you know, you're studying stuff that you don't like, whatever, whatever, it is still on you. If you leave school and you go, all right, my education's done, you're done, right? Technology's constantly changing. Technology's constantly evolving. Think about where we were to where we are now just 10 years ago. Just 20 years ago, the internet is exploding over the world. We've got technology that is just rapidly changing the face of the earth, social media, for example. With all that in mind, if you think your education is the responsibility of someone else, it's in someone else's hands, that's just folly. You need to take education into your own hands and You know, if your school sucks, find a new school. If you can't find a new school, get the basic amount of work done and start educating yourself. Listen to audiobooks. Read. 
right? Read as much as possible on topics you listen, you like. If you don't like reading, get Audible and download books and listen to it in your ear. If you can't afford Audible, get a podcast and listen to it. Go to a place that has free Wi-Fi and download all the episodes that you like and just listen to it while you're on your way to school, while you're working, while you're working out. Do what you can to educate yourself and take that step forward because trust me, employers will not give a shit if you had a good or a bad school. They will just want you to be able to perform. And this might not be in your mindset right now, but it will be a case in sometime in the future, you will leave home. Sometime in the future, your parents will pass on and you will be responsible for yourself and then likely for a family. So in that case, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to work. And wouldn't it be ideal to work doing something you like, something you're good at? The average work work life is 40 weeks, 40 hours per, per week for 40 years or so. That's a lot of time to be doing something you hate. Imagine the worst class in your life and just doing that for 40 years, right? Find a, find a, if you don't know what you like, that's the first part of your search. Yeah, so I talk to a lot of kids and they're like, I don't know what I enjoy. Well, there you go. You've got, you've got a search on your hands. And if you do know what you enjoy, what's the next step to get you there? Where you're here, you can get over to this other point. What's the next step along that path to get you to your end goal? Your end goal might change, but you need to take action. I'm 30 right now. I'm nearly 31. So let's say I decided I want to be a professional sports player. I'm a fit guy, but I am not fit enough. I'm not competent enough. I've not trained enough. So there is very, very little chance that I could compete professionally in much of anything. Physically, right? People are coming to the end of their careers around my age or in a couple of years. I couldn't get up to that standard. However, if I had dedicated myself to that goal as a young teen, if I had have known about it, if I had have pushed for it, if I had have had a different past, whatever, I could have taken those steps. Right now, sorry, in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years time, you'll look back on yourself now and go, why didn't I take the steps? Make that change, take that action. And if you're a teacher listening to this, please, please, please make sure you take that time to emphasize the why. Make the students interested. Get them going, well, this is what I want to accomplish. This is why I'm doing this thing. I know. I understand. Yeah? I understand why I'm doing this. If you can instill that into them, if you can tell them why, they'll work and they'll be the best behaved kids you'll ever have and they'll respect you for it. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, there's a couple of things you can do. The first one is to rate and review it wherever you're listening to it. Chuck it up, give me that five stars, and let the world know that you're enjoying what I'm doing. The second one is to share it with someone. Link them, send them, tell them about it. You can talk about it on your own podcast. You could write about it in a blog. If you really want to support me, there's a couple of other ways. I have started up a Patreon in which you can give a monthly contributions to basically just help me have more time to do more podcasts like this. Um, I also have a GoFundMe as well as the books that I have released. All of those are very good ways that you can support the podcast. It's a small investment on your end, but it would make a massive difference on my end when everyone gets together. So yeah, have a good one. Catch up.